Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Elijah was a great man of like nature with ourselves. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. My brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Father in heaven, Jesus, your Son, taught us that the truth will make us free. He taught us that your word is truth and that we are sanctified by the truth. My heart's desire is for the freedom and the holiness, the sanctity of your people and of myself. And so I plead the cause of truth now and ask that the spirit of truth would come and that he would anoint the effort of my mouth to speak biblical truth and that the truth and the spirit in concert would strike home in every heart with life-changing force. There's not a one of us in this room who does not need help who does not need power, who does not need cleansing, who does not need purification, who does not need guidance, who does not need encouragement. Every one of us stand in need of the word. Oh God, get behind it now, I pray, and drive it home. And if there is an unbeliever in this room, as I believe there is, would you open that person's heart as they hear about your heart for healing? In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I tried to show from 1 Corinthians 12, 9 that gifts of healings are meant for the churches of Paul's day and meant for the churches of our day. I stress that in the New Testament, I don't see any talk about the gift of healing or about healers. I don't see anything like that in the churches. Rather, what I see is a promise that the Holy Spirit, according to his Freedom and wisdom and sovereignty disperses gifts of healings out across the congregation so that one day you might find yourself drawn to pray with 
unusual effectiveness over a person and they would be healed and you would have been granted a gift of healing. And the next day you may find yourself praying for a person with maybe even a lesser malady and feel no extraordinary power. So the point was, it is right and good for the churches to be desirous of spiritual gifts, including gifts of healings. Not as a means of boasting, God forbid, but as a means of love. I don't think the New Testament wants us to choose between the high, excellent way of love and the lower but dignified way of gifts. I think the New Testament wants them in this order and love being buttressed and in, uh, worked out with gifts and always guided by love. Never the two separate, but always the two together. I think that's the goal of the ideal in the New Testament. Now, today... James 5, 13 to 14. The question is this. Do the healing instructions of James 5 contradict a community where gifts of healings are in operation? Now, let me quote for you a pastor from England who believes that they do contradict each other and rule each other out so that only James 5 is left. Quote, The idea that God has placed gifted healers in our local churches is also excluded by James, who says nothing about sending for someone who possesses a gift. We are to simply send for the elders, whose task is to pray, not to effect the healing by virtue of some personal gift. Indeed, James quote, no, James goes out of his way to say that if a sick person is raised, this will be by the power of the Lord working in answer to prayer, not by any power channeled through the elders, close quote. Now, this pastor in England then, in the next page, attacks the ministry of John Wimber. Uh, Wimber, as most of you know, is the pastor of the uh, Anaheim Vineyard, and uh, that's where we went, 58 of us, a few weeks ago to this conference on holiness. He's the author of Power Evangelism and Power Healing, both of which I've read now in their entirety. And he says, this pastor, concerning John Wimber's ministry, quote, John Wimber tells us that when he was called to visit a very sick baby in the hospital, he addressed the spirit of death, saying, Death, get out of here. Immediately, he claims, the atmosphere changed. James, however, has never heard of such amazing feats being achieved by men, and so he fails to give this spectacular kind of role to the elders of the church, denying them all the extrasensory insight and power of today's healing superstars, he reduces them to mere prayers. Wimberism, therefore, with all its arrogance and presumption, 
receives a crushing rebuke from James 5. Pretty strong words from pastor to pastor. And my approach to this text now this morning is governed by my concern to test that accusation. So if you wonder why I include what I include and why I leave out what I leave out, just know that when you approach a text, you always approach it with a certain question in mind. My question in mind is, is that true? That was my question. Is this pastor right in attacking and accusing John Wimber's healing ministry in this way? Now, in uh, coming to the defense of Wimber, which is what I'm going to do, I do not say that all that the vineyard does would meet with my approval in the way they do it. I'm just interested in this one issue. Can the teaching of James 5 coexist in a community that is practicing the spiritual gifts of healings? That's the issue. Because there are many people who think they can't coexist, that this text rules out gifts of healings because it simply calls for the elders. Okay, I've got four observations then that I believe show that they can coexist and, in fact, did coexist in the churches to which James was writing. Observation number one. In James 5, 13 to 18, what we see are three kinds of praying for the sick or suffering, not just one kind of praying. And one of them is very broad and flexible. Let me show you each of them. Number one, verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, this, the word suffering here could, could mean any kind of suffering. It doesn't have to just be sickness or just be affliction or persecution, just anything. Did you walk into this room this morning with any kind of hurt? This text says, pray for yourself. Yourself. So the first kind of praying is pray for yourself. I have a grandmother. We call her Mamon. She's 95. She's in a nursing home in Philadelphia. She doesn't know anybody anymore. And she grew up in our home with us. And she was very cynical about prayer. It brought my father to tears many times that she lived with us because my father was a traveling evangelist and was away from home and couldn't protect me and my sister through all those years of having a cynical mother-in-law who just made fun of prayer often. And my father would cry and plead with me to stand firm on what he had taught me and not be infected. Family relations can be real tough, can't they? And uh, she used to say things like, I don't think you ought to pray for yourself because that's just pride. That's just self-centeredness. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds noble. Sounds high-minded. You know what that is? That's pride. Because when a person is hurting and says, God, help me. I need your help. I can't handle this. That's not pride. (laughs) That's not pride. That's humility, lowliness, faith, desperation. That's good. That's what James says. If you are suffering, pray for yourself. So that's the first thing the text teaches. Everybody should pray for himself. Second, verse 14, 15. 
Is any among you sick? This is the praying now of the elders for the, the bedridden. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will raise up the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Now, the reason I call this person bedridden is because I see a couple of inst- a couple of phrases that tip me off that that's the case. The first phrase is, pray over. The elders are to come and pray over this person. And you might say, well, that's just a common phrase. You can't make anything out of that. It's not a common phrase. Prosukamai, the word prayer, occurs 84 times in the New Testament. I looked every one of them up yesterday, no, Friday, to see whether this little preposition, that's not real hard to do, by the way. If you've got a concordance, you just you run down the list, you know. In, in, in the Greek concordance that I use, you just you run down the list and look for this little preposition, epi. It doesn't occur with any of them except this one. This is not an ordinary phrase, to pray over. So the picture I have is elders around a mat. And the person's on the mat, flat. And they're over him, praying. The second tip-off that this person's bedridden is the Lord will raise him up. Not just heal him, but raise him up. So there are two tip-offs that the kind of person we're dealing with in this kind of praying is somebody who's so weak or so laid low, they can't get to the church where people might pray for them in in a congregational setting. They have to get the church to them. And the church comes in the form of its representatives, the, the shepherds, the elders. The third kind of praying is in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, notice all three of these kinds of praying for yourself, from the elders, for each other, are about suffering or healing. And the third one, this one right here, is incredibly broad. It could mean a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. It could mean when I'm at home alone praying for my grandmother in Philadelphia. It could mean when a team of you go to some house to pray about the house or to pray about the person. I can't think of any limitations you could put on verse 16 for one another. Any place that Christians are praying for each other, whether with each other or apart from each other, This is just a wide open door to me to say, I don't know how they were praying in the churches to which James wrote. Do you? I just think there's an open-endedness about prayer in this text. And you know, it's amazing how hatchet-happy some interpreters can get with arguments from silence. Where's any gifts in this text? Why is it? I don't know. Maybe they're in verse 16. Who knows? It, I just get so frustrated when people from, from absences start hatcheting other people and saying, this has to be the way it is because that's not there. I say, well, it just boggles my mind. And so my first observation is that the teaching on prayer in James 5 is very broad. It's very general. We're not nailed down to only pray as elders around a bed in somebody's house. My goodness gracious, we're to pray for ourselves, we're to go to bedsides, and then 
open the doors. One woman walked out after me. She said, now what becomes of women in all this? I said, what? Because she knows I don't think women should be elders. I said, no problem. I get two, I get, she had two questions actually. What becomes of, of, of women and what about elders who are sick? I said, okay, answer to number one. Women are in verse 16. And the sky is the limit for prayer ministries among women. In fact, I wish the Lord would raise up a woman or several to be prayer coordinators of this church. I know of churches where there are women who are the prayer coordinators and the ministries are incredible that they do. A close parenthesis on that. By the way, if, if, it, if an elder's laid low, other elders should go if they call for the other elders. I mean, so those are the two questions she had. And if you have questions at the end, you can come by the door too. Although I'm supposed to run for an airplane real fast after this message. So come on Wednesday night. Part of the argument then uh, that I'm having in response is this is a flexible text, not a narrow one. Second, second observation. The example of Elijah in verses 17 and 18, the example of Elijah seems to indicate that James' thought is flowing in this direction, while the thought of those who are opposed to gifts being manifest in the church are flowing in this direction. Now, let me explain what I mean. Uh, one of the most common arguments against gifts being experienced today is this. Well, let me just read it for you from uh, a very popular radio pastor whom you'd all know if I were to give you his name. He says, according to Scripture, miracles occurred in three major periods, the days of Moses and Joshua, the days of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Christ and the apostles. Each of these periods lasted something less than a hundred years, but in each period there was a proliferation of miracles. Miracles were the norm. God can interject himself into the stream of history supernaturally anytime he wishes, but... It seems that he chose to limit himself essentially to these three periods. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, and that's it. No more normative, miraculous gifts. They're gone. They're over. They cease. Now, when you take that line of thinking... And you compare it to James 5, 17 and 18, it looks to me that they're going in opposite directions, those two lines of thinking. James 5, 17 says, Elijah, so there's one of the great miracle workers of the Old Testament. Elijah was a man of like nature with, your, with ourselves, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. Now, what's the point of that example? The point of that example is that we are to not fall prey to an argument that somehow Elijah is so much in a different class that we can't use him for a model of prayer. That's the point. 
It's as though this text were written specifically to counter the objection that Elijah lived in a certain time of history. He was a certain kind of person who prayed certain kinds of prayers and experienced normative miracles. Don't take Elijah as a model. Strange. Because this text right here says, do take Elijah as a model because he was just like you. And notice that the line of argument from verses 16 to 17 to 18 is an argument for praying for healing. It says, pray for one another that you may be healed, because you know that the prayer of a righteous person avails much, for consider Elijah. You see the train of thought? Pray that you may be healed. Righteous people have strong prayers. Consider Elijah. And, and then it inserts, and remember, don't let anybody object to say that Elijah is in a class by himself. It just stands right there in the text. Don't let anybody say that Elijah is in a class by himself. Rather, let the spirit and power of Elijah come upon you. And notice, it's not talking about the elders here. It's talking about men and women who are in the church praying for each other. Pray like Elijah when he closed the heavens for three and a half years. Pray like Elijah on Mount Carmel when he brought rain after three and a half years. Pray like that for each other. So my second observation is when I compare the thought of James writing for the churches of his day to the teachers today who use Elijah to justify the cessation of gifts, I just see diametrically opposed ways of thinking about prayer and about Elijah. Third observation. The prayer of faith will heal the sick person. Verse 15 And the prayer of faith will heal the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. Now notice what the text does not say. It does not say that whenever the elders pray for a sick person, they'll get well. It doesn't say that. It says the prayer of faith will heal. It doesn't say the elders can always pray the prayer of faith. Nor does it say that they will be raised up or healed immediately. It just says that when the prayer of faith is prayed, whatever that is, God heals. Now, what is it? What is the prayer of faith? Oh, I've wrestled with this for years and years. I'll give you my present state of thought. And I am open to learning more about the prayer of faith. But... As I look at the the New Testament, I see a line of teaching in about four places that lead me to believe this is a special gift of faith. This is not ordinary saving faith. It's not just general trust in God. It is a spirit-given assurance of something God intends to do so that we may believe it without fail. I asked my dad one time, I said, have you ever prayed like that, Daddy? My dad's a preacher, an evangelist. Have you, ever, have you ever prayed so long and so hard that before you got up off your knees, you knew it was going to happen? He said, yes, about five times in his life. And I said, tell me about it. And he told me one story about praying one night in the middle of an evangelistic crusade where nobody was getting saved. And he was heartbroken and wrestled with God until about 2 a.m. 
And he said, at 2 a.m., the Lord assured me that five people would be converted the next night. My dad, my dad is an anti-charismatic, mind you. He, he, he's going to write a book called Power Without Tongues. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. He, so this is the kind of person we're talking about here. He said, and he said, the next night I got up and preached and I gave an invitation and four people walked forward. I closed the service and I just stood at the front and waited. And they came back. The person came back, got halfway home and they came back, said, I had to come back. I said, and I asked my dad, I said, Daddy, why don't you pray like that all the time? And you know what he answered? I never would expect it. He said, if I did, I'd be dead. That's how hard he wrestled. I think that's what he meant. That's how hard he wrestled that night. This is not something you experience every day, day in and day out. At least I don't. My dad hasn't. I admire my dad very much. He's way up here in my spiritual estimation. But it is a gift. Now, let me try to support that from a few other texts. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, to one this, to the other, faith. As to Christians who already have faith, faith is given as one of the spiritual gifts. And then, in chapter 13, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Though I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So you can have the spiritual gift of faith to remove a mountain and be a loveless person. This blows my mind away. I've been reading the book by John White, uh, The Spirit Comes with Power. I recommend it very highly. I'm not all the way through with it, but I've read half of it. And, and uh, he talks about many instances where power is given, which is surely divine power, and then is misused and abused. You know, we're prone, I'm prone, when I see power being misused, to say, that's devil. That's the devil that's given that power. You know, a loveless person exercising power is exercising demonic power, I would be prone to think. But it seems like 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says, Though you have faith to remove mountains and have not love, you're nothing. And he's talking to the community here as though you might fall into a loveless frame and still be the kind of person whom God grants tremendous faith to do some extraordinary act. So there you've got two texts that seem to indicate that faith is a special gift. And the last one, mountain-moving faith, reminds us of what? Mark 11, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the seas, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done. And then he links it up with prayer. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, that just blows my mind away. The absoluteness with which that promise is made to doubtless faith. And my inclination right now is to say that's the beginning of the teaching on the prayer of faith. That is, God may grant now and then in your life such a deep, God-given, spirit-anointed assurance of what God intends to do, you can get up off your knees and know it's done so that your faith is the way of laying hold on it for doing it. So, here's the line of teaching. Mark eleven twenty three, the mountain-moving faith of prayer, their prayer of faith. 1 Corinthians 12, 9 to 1 is given. Faith, 
1 Corinthians 13, 2, Though you have faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, you're nothing. And then James 5, 15, The prayer of faith will raise or heal the sick person. It's stated so absolutely that I'm inclined to think it's not just an ordinary hit and miss kind of affair. It's a gift. So here's my picture of the elders. The elders uh, go into the sick man's room and they gather around his mat. And maybe you have eight, ten, dozen, five elders. And instead of those elders saying, well, the spiritual gifts are all over. And all we can do here is, is pray and surrender the person into God's will and hope that God will, according to his will, do something. But we ourselves cannot expect to be graced with any particular gift and be the channel or the instrument of this person's healing. I don't, I don't see that here. Rather, it's just as likely from this text that what we have is a group of men standing around this sick person and what they do is this. They bow and they pray and they say something like, Father, guide us now as we pray and help us to know just what direction our prayer should take. And would you increase our faith right now as we pray and worship you? And according to your will, would you grant that one or several of us would be granted a gift of faith, a gift of healing? Because I really think the, the gift of faith in the presence of a sick person is tantamount to the gift, a gift of healing. If you're going to believe God for healing, then you've got a gift of healing. So they pray, and it may be that God says, yes, I will. And there rises in the heart of some or one of those elders a strong conviction that they are going to heal this person because it's a gift from God. And they are holding fast to that promise and that gift. And so my uh, third observation is that the gift of faith is uh, a spiritual gift and indicates that the, or the, the prayer of faith is a spiritual gift and indicates that power is available through that for the healing and that they're not outside the realm of spiritual gifts. One last observation. God intends that in some circumstances the shepherds be the channel of needed spiritual gifts to the flock. God intends that in some circumstances the shepherds, the elders, be the channel through which the needed spiritual gifts come in the moment that they're needed. Let me try to explain that. The question that this pile of books over here from three weeks ago is uh, raising is this. Why call for the elders instead of calling for gifted healers, people who have the gift of healing? That's the key question. And my two answers to that are these. First, what we saw last week, and if we're on the right track, is this. There aren't necessarily healers in the church. The New Testament never talks about there being healers in the church. It talks about gifts of healing strewn to the church. Now, it may be in any given congregation that one person finds that when he prays, there is regular success in praying for healing. 
And so we might come to think of that person as the person who more often than not receives a gift of healing when he prays. But you know, in the New Testament, there's no guarantee that there would be a person like that in every church. Now here's James writing to the churches of the dispersion. A lot of churches. What guidelines should he give for somebody who's sick at home? He can't say, call for the healers, because he doesn't have any New Testament guarantee that they're healers in the church. He can't say, call for the people who have characteristically had success in praying for healing, because there's no guarantee that it would always be this person or that person. All that the New Testament says is that gifts of healing will be given to the church. And so it's just wrong to insist that if there are gifts of healing, James had to write it this way. Namely, let the person who's sick call for the healers. Let the person who's sick call for those who have gifts of healing. And my second part of the answer is this. If you're a sheep and you get a broken leg, whom do you need? Who's the natural person to want to have around? Shepherd. And I hope that you all know that the elders are the shepherds. Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5, the elders are the shepherds of the sheep. It's the most natural thing in the world that if a sheep is sick on a bed, that they would want the shepherds to come. Now, right at this point, this text really turned on me. And I began to see it in a whole new light and applied it to myself. And I'm going to close with this application to myself along with the other 29 or so elders at Bethlehem as I judge them. You know, the, the way I think a lot of people approach this text is to say, well, now we know the eldership. We know what elders are for. We know what elders do. Because we've read 1 Timothy 3. We've read Titus 1. Uh, we've read 1 Peter 5, we've read Acts 20, we know the eldership. So, here we come now to this text, and uh, we will now box this text in and say, well, there's no, no spiritual gift action here because this, the elders never, never are required to have any spiritual gifts according to those other texts, and so uh, we'll rule that out. Why not come to the text and say, Maybe as an elder, a shepherd, I have something to learn here about my role. You know what happened when I did that? Three very pointed questions came home to me. Number one, could it be that the picture of the elders we have in this passage is not one in which the extraordinary spiritual gifts have ceased but one in which the elders, the shepherds, are responsible to be more zealous for spiritual gifts than anybody. Could it be that we should just turn the text back onto the elders instead of forcing the text to mean something we think it should mean because we know what elders are all about? Let the text tell us something about elders, namely that elders ought to be men with gifts that men ought to seek spiritual gifts, including gifts of healing and faith, when they become elders, with all their might. Second question came to me is this. Could it be that the shepherds are to carry out their doctrinal spiritual oversight of the church 
by living in such constant fullness of the Spirit that they are the most likely candidates for a gift of healing when the need arises. And if you're going to call, call together a group of people, could it be that the eldership are supposed to be so full, so overflowing, so open, so powerful, so walking in the Spirit that these men are the most likely candidates when you want to gather a group of people to pray for somebody for spiritual gifts. And the last question that came to my mind was, could it be that sickness is so frequent a misery among the sheep of God that shepherds will simply take it as their responsibility, their normal responsibility to be zealous for gifts of faith and healing after the pattern of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus when he walked this earth. So my conclusion is that James 5 is not a crushing blow to John Wimber, at least not on this score of the gifts of healing. Rather, I'm inclined more likely now to see James 5 as a rebuke to shepherds who never have the faith to heal and congregations who never pray in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Let's pray. And so, Father, we are, we are rebuked by this text, not, not anybody else. I am. And I want to sit down with the ashes on my head and be still before you and Confess my tremendous need as a shepherd elder in this flock. I ask for gifts of healings to be given to the eldership here. I ask for gifts of faith, workings of miracles according to your will. I ask for an incredible lowliness and humility and openness and compassion and love to flow among the shepherds. And Lord, I ask for gifts to be lavished upon the sheep, gifts of healings, faith, workings of miracles, plus the greater gifts of teaching and prophecy. And I ask, Lord, that when we pray for each other, as verse 16 says we should, that you would grant us to pray in the spirit and the power of your servant, Elijah. In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.